So this morning I want to continue in Luke, beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. This is the proclamation of John the Baptist in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, not Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know, as I was preparing for this second sermon in our Advent series, this being the second Sunday of Advent, I thought it might be interesting to look at all the different ways the prophets have foretold of the advent or the coming of Christ. And while I found that each of them prophesied about the coming Messiah, I also found in Malachi a very subtle, very small passage of Scripture that prophesied not the Messiah, but the coming of John the Baptist. The one who was crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. See, Malachi is talking here about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as you recall, called men and women to repentance. His appointed office, his title, was the messenger of God. His mission was to prepare the way in the hearts of people for the advent, that is the coming, that's what advent means, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament in Luke 3, the writer quotes one of the major prophets, Isaiah, and he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the prophets of old are foretelling of the coming Messiah, and not only of the coming Messiah, but of the messenger who will prepare the way for him. Now you remember last Sunday, I said that the purpose of the first advent, Jesus coming as the baby in the manger, 
was to prepare us for the second advent, Jesus coming again as Christ the King, right? So if John the Baptist was the messenger for the first advent of Christ, who then holds the office of the messenger of the second advent of Christ? Who is calling people to repentance today? Who holds the responsibility to prepare the way of the Lord for His second coming? Well, isn't it us? Is it not the church, the body of Christ? We have been given this mandate in the Great Commission by our Lord Jesus. We are to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. And if we accept that we have the authority and responsibility that Jesus gave us in that mandate, the Great Commission, then the question is, are we fulfilling it? Are we effectively spreading the good news of the gospel? Are we as the church, as individuals, actively engaging the unchurched? Are we personally involved in this evangelical mission of the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That is our mission. Do we regularly invite people to invite Jesus into their hearts? See, all these questions are ones that we should continually ask ourselves and we should be asking our churches and our church leadership, are we fulfilling our responsibility as the messenger of the second coming in the way that John the Baptist did the first coming of Jesus. Why is this important? Well, if we turn our attention to current events, we can see that we are in a world who is desperately in need of Jesus. More than ever before, the world needs the church to stand up and be the church to the people in our communities. Very simply, we need to be the voice crying out in the wilderness because, well, there's just far too much crying in the wilderness. There's just too much wilderness. Bleak, empty, hopeless wilderness where people wander around looking for something to fill the void and not knowing what it is they need to fill the void. You know, the the people of Israel had, uh, they have a tendency to speak in in this imagery that, that calls back into being Stories of their past, and they have such a storied past. Jeremiah 31.15, God says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Well, I've often wondered what that means, because if you, if you look at your Old Testament history, Rachel was long dead and buried 
when Jeremiah was walking the earth as a prophet. So what was he referring to? To what was he referring when he was talking about Rachel weeping for her children? You see, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Rachel dies while in childbirth and she is, is, goes into labor on the road to Bethlehem. In the midst of her suffering there on the roadside on the way to Bethlehem, her midwife tries to comfort her with the news that she is having a son. And so her child is at the same time the cause of her weeping and suffering and her only hope for the future, both. The cause of her suffering and her only hope for the future. Rachel is buried in Ramah. So later, Jeremiah is using the imagery of Rachel's crying over her child to express the sorrow and the hope of the children of Israel. Because in Jeremiah's day, it's from Ramah, the city where Rachel is buried, that the conquering Babylonians are deporting the enslaved Jews to Babylon forcing them out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, taking them into captivity. And so he says, Rachel weeps over her children once more as they are enslaved. But Rachel's comforted with a promise that they will return home one day. See, Jeremiah is prophesying about a future return from Babylon, but he's also prophesying about the slaughter of the innocents. We read about that in the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew, he speaks about Rachel weeping yet again over the slaughter of the children of Bethlehem by order of King Herod because he heard that the Messiah had been born. And so he wanted to ensure that this Messiah never grew up to be a king. And so he ordered the slaughter of all the male children. Rachel is weeping over her children. It's an interesting Christmas message, isn't it? We can't ever forget that this joyous season of Christmas, of Advent, is occurring because we need a Savior. And praise be to God that He's coming. Rachel continues to weep over her children if we borrow the language of our Jewish forefathers. As, as they continue to be slaughtered, our children continue to be slaughtered at the hands of the wicked. Working their evil under this guise of health care. Freedom of choice. I have to tell you that the times that we live in they can make you somewhat melancholy even during the Christmas season if you think back about all that's transpired in the world this year. You know, I always think during Christmas, and I know you've heard me a thousand times talk about my dad. Just so happens that he passed on December 16th many years ago. And so for a while, Christmas took on a 
deeper meaning for us. It was kind of a connection with my dad who had passed. And I may have told you this story, and, and if I have, forgive me, but every year about this time of year it comes back to me. I think back to when I was a kid, and, and we always used to go to church, and, and when we went, we used to sit in my dad's big pewter-colored Lincoln Continental. And my dad really loved that car. He'd worked hard to build a life for us. And one day he decided that he would spend some of his hard-earned money on a brand-new Lincoln. Now, my mother always got on to him about spending the money, but I could tell when she got into that car. She loved to sit down in that big old plush leather seat and put on the 8-track. You remember those? <laughs> put on the 8-track. She had an 8-track tape of Paul Marriott. I don't know if you ever heard Paul Marriott. It's, uh, well, elevator music is what I would like to call it. But she loved that. And the sound system in that car, it would just be so full. And when that 8-track wasn't playing, it was a big, quiet, plush interior, deep forest green leather. It smelled like new leather all the time. We'd never had such an automobile. And we'd pile into that car on Sunday morning. We'd go to church. And after church, the dreaded question would come. Some days it was my dad that would ask. And some days it was my mom. But there was always the same question. What did you learn in Sunday school today? Oh, please. Now, even if I had managed to pay attention in church, I would often struggle to articulate what it was that I had learned. I feel like this after I come out of Bible study some Wednesday nights. You know, as we sit around and we're talking about things and, and it tends to generate as many questions as it does answers, but it's all good, healthy discussion. But even now when I get into my car to run up the road to Shepherd to, to preach a very similar sermon, it, it, you know, it starts out being the same sermon, but sometimes the Holy Spirit directs this way and that. I often ask myself that same question, even though mom and dad aren't pressuring me to do so. What did I learn in church today? You ever do that? And so here's my take on the sermon so far. See, God spoke through the prophet of Jeremiah saying, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforting, comforted because they are dead. And if I read into that, everything that's in the gospel lesson today, Jeremiah foretells of the murder of the innocents by the wicked king Herod as he attempted to prevent the new king, the baby in the manger, Jesus, from growing up and coming into his kingdom. And so in the midst of this great joy of the birth of the Savior, there's also intense sadness as Herod carries out this wicked decree on the people of Israel. And so if we push the fast forward, not on the 8-track, but 
through time, if we fast forward 2,000 years as the world once again prepares for the celebration of the coming of Christ into the world, it's a time of great joy. And in the midst of that joy, our peace is continually shattered. We still have soldiers overseas engaged in a war. We still have violence in our cities. Our children are continually, daily, senselessly murdered for the sake of convenience. And Rachel continues to weep for her children, refusing to be comforted for they are dead. And the question I ask often, and God's big enough to handle it, is God, where are you in all of this? It's a valid question, and I think every one of us at one time or another has asked the question, whenever circumstances come up as a barrier in front of us that make us question our faith, make us question who we are and who God is and what's the relationship between us. And the only answer I can offer as I look at this passage of scripture is that God hasn't left us. God is still here. He's with us in this storm. He's with us in our circumstances. He's never promised that there wouldn't be storms. Never once in scripture do I see a promise that says your life is going to be rosy once you accept Christ. What he does promise is that whatever circumstances come in this fallen and broken world, he will walk through those with you so that you never have to face the storms alone. And in that, I think we can all find joy. He promises that all things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. You know, there has been a more recent discovery of a much more ancient piece of papyrus that has that very verse written. And the nuance is just a little bit different as it's closer to the original language. It says, in all things... God cooperates for good. For those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. As I think about that, I'm I'm thinking, what's what's the difference? Well, the difference is God is sovereign, but He gives you free will. And God works within this fallen and broken world until the time that Jesus comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He works despite the circumstances. He cooperates with whatever is going on in the world for His honor, His glory, and for your and my highest good. See, cooperates means that God is intimately involved in what's going on in your life. He is not a distant God. He's not sitting on His throne in in this glass palace and we're not gazing up 
hopefully at a God who is detached from us. No. In the first advent, God became one of us. As He sent Jesus into the world to be completely human. And because He's been here and He knows what we're going through, He promises that He will cooperate with us in all things for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we may not see it immediately due to the fog of whatever circumstance that we're in, but God will use even our most dire situations for the greater good. And there's joy in that. So through faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Maybe even Rachel can stop her weeping. The hope is that in Christ, her children live on in His presence. And certainly we can find joy in that through a merciful God. And so I guess if I was sitting in the back seat of that Lincoln Continental and mom or dad looked in the rear view mirror or I can almost see my mom folding down the visor that had the mirror on it and adjusting it so she can see me as she talks to me facing the mirror. Do you ever do that? Hmm. And ask me, what did I learn in church today? I would have to say that the first advent had its messenger to proclaim to humankind the good news, John the Baptist. Proclaiming the second advent is up to you and me. And so I encourage you to go be a messenger today. Go tell it on the mountain, as the song says, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was not only born, but that he also died and he rose again from the dead. And that He's sitting there at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And from there, one day soon, we don't know when. Even Jesus doesn't know when. Only the Father knows when. He will return as King of kings. Lord of lords. And when He does come, we have to be ready. And won't that be a joyous day. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Heavenly Father God, those were the words the heavenly host proclaimed announcing the birth of your one and only begotten Son. And they were not uttered to heads of state nor to priests nor to kings but to lowly shepherds tending their flocks in the fields. And Jesus was not born in Rome nor in Jerusalem, but he was born in lowly Bethlehem of Judea, demonstrating once again that in your kingdom the least shall be first. And he wasn't born into luxury, but to Mary and Joseph, weary travelers seeking refuge in a manger. And he did not come in glory, but as a baby, the infinite becoming the infant, 
so that Scripture would be fulfilled. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it is that peace, Father God, that the world so desperately needs right now. Today, just like then, our world is in need of a Savior because there is apathy, there is injustice, there is poverty, there is pain, violence, suffering on the earth. That which is wrong is held up to be right. Evil is called good and good is called evil. Our freedom is constantly being trampled and compromised under the weight of oppression and of this insidious scourge of false religion that is threatening all that fail to submit. But the difference between the world now and the world before Jesus is that today, through the blood sacrifice of your Son, we have our salvation, the work is done, the victory is won, it is finished. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts and our homes for the celebration of the first advent, the first coming of Christ to the world, help us to be ever mindful that there will be a second advent when your son will once again come to earth, not as a helpless child, but in power and in glory. And he will crush Satan and his followers underfoot and he will reign forever and ever. And Father, we thank you for the blessed hope that you, through your grace and mercy, have provided that through Christ we can be reconciled to you by faith. That if we will only believe in Christ crucified, died, buried, resurrected, that we too are promised life everlasting with you. And finally, Father, let us remember that Christmas is indeed about presence. That is the presence of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The divine made human so that humanity could be restored to the divine. What a tremendous gift. What a blessed Savior. And so we celebrate Happy birthday, Son of Man. Merry Christmas, Son of God. In your holy and precious name we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.